everyone. I'm going to start by thanking Nate and Sarah for organizing this session and allowing me to be here. And second, I want to apologize because this paper is very much a work in progress. Um, and so, unfortunately, I don't feel that I have been able to fit all the ideas that I am working on, um, but we'll see how it goes. I will appreciate your This paper draws from a larger research project um, that I did for my dissertation on the politics of neoliberal water reforms and agrarian change in South Africa. Uh, I worked specifically in the Zaris Valley, uh, which is known for Zaris fruit juice that some of you might be aware of. Sarah's is located about 95 miles northeast of Cape Town. I am not actually going to talk about Sarah's today um, because this paper is an attempt to situate uh, water debates within broader uh, South African development debates and also notions of nature, hegemony, and power. But I will nevertheless show you a few snapshots from Sarah's. This is a new dam that was constructed in 1999, well, completed construction in 1999, and it became the focus of my research. It was called the Kukudo Dam. And why it became so interesting to me, because it really embodied all the neoliberal water reforms that were unfolding. And the reason why I was looking at water and agrarian change is that a lot of work in South Africa has been focused on the commodification privatization of water services. And my interest was to understand, well, how will neoliberal reforms affect agriculture? Because it has historically depended on the mobilization of abundant and cheap water resources. And sure enough, what I discovered is that it has really affected agriculture and the way it has commercial, white commercial farmers have responded to these changes have implications for broader classes of agricultural change, including land reform, fragmentation of labor, um, and the displacement and urbanization of agricultural labor. And so the Dan project was actually driven by um, commercial farmers but the dam was destined for agriculture and uh, the town use of the town of Sarah. These are the images that I saw. These are informal workers that are increasingly dependent on for agricultural work. So there has been a displacement from permanent labor to temporary labor. Land reform also became a key component of the dam project. And this is a new informal settlement that arose in 2000. Um, and all of these images uh, seem to shout out to me that this was not supposed to be happening in post-apartheid South Africa. The little gray metal boxes in front of the shack are prepaid water meters that you might have heard about and that have now come to characterize the South African landscape. In fact, prepaid water meters have been a major site of contestation in major urban centers like Johannesburg. Yet, there was not, not, no such resistance in this town. And this definitely posed a lot of 
which speaks to what I want to do in this paper. So what I'm going to do is uh, discuss briefly uh, post-apartheid trajectories and, and, and then situate the paper um, in the theoretical considerations that I'm looking at and then talk about South African applied reforms um, through a periodization from colonialism to liberation. So in 1994, the African National Congress was democratically elected in the country's first multiracial elections. Um, and it quickly shifted uh, trajectories from a very much Keynesian political platform to a neoliberal platform in which um, primacy was given to the imperative of capital accumulation and democratization of various aspects of development. And so the democratic transition was very much characterized as a neoliberal transition from race to class apartheid. The result was increasing socioeconomic inequalities and social mobilization and protest. In the late 1990s and 2000s, there was just an outright eruption, a resurgence of community struggles that were very much centered around water. This cartoon very much um, reflects um, the politics of water privatization uh, in the post-apartheid period. So while uh, population is no longer shackled to colonial apartheid powers, it is now at the mercy of corporate capital, foreign and domestic. So given the sudden uprising and social unrest, the government reacted. Uh, Thabo Mbeki, the president at the time in 2003, came out with this idea that while the policies adopted in 1994 had very much served what he called the first economy, the developed first world economy, um, it, now attention needed to be paid to the second economy, the underdeveloped economy. So, as some commentators said, it was just a modernization redux uh, theory coming out. Um, and what followed um, within South African debates and political economy was a revival of the articulation thesis. Much attention was paid to showing how, in fact, South Africa's economies were very much structurally connected and implicated with one another. Um, but here, from this paper, I draw very much on Jillian Hart's understanding of this two thesis uh, discourse, where she says that it very much shows a depoliticization thrust in order to, and therefore it must be seen as, as how, as an understanding of how the race and class are re-articulated through a project of national liberation. So she says, articulations of national liberation are not just cynical manipulations from above. They carry powerful moral weight and connect the specific histories, memories, embodied experiences, and meanings of racial oppression, racialized dispossession, and struggle. Because official articulations of nationalism tap into popular understandings of freedom, justice, and liberation from apartheid, racial oppression, they bolster the ANC state's hegemonic project in crucially important ways. 
they're also vulnerable to counterclaims of betrayal. And I think her analysis is really important and really helps in understanding why it is that despite the lack of, of achievement in, in the national project of liberation, the better life for all as it was promised, despite this, there is still this strong support uh, for the ANC, even though that has very much waned um, in the last few years. And this idea of how the ANC is able to continuously reassert itself as an agent of liberation carries powerful weight, as she explains. So for, for my work, what I want to do is take these ideas of articulation, which he draws um, from Stuart Hall and Gramsci, and also link them to recent work on, in political ecology on hegemony, power, and water developed by Michael Ebers and Alex Loftus, um, in order to show how, in fact, post-project processes are articulated through race, class, nation, and nature. And I don't mean to say that I, I want to use the politics of water as an example of how um, race, class, and nation are re-articulated, but rather to insist that the historical and contemporary processes of socio-spatial change pivot around and are materially and discursively constructed in the mobilization and transformation of socio-nation, and specifically the production of water. Um, and so as you can imagine, my work is very much inspired by Eric Slingo. Um, not only theoretically, but empirically. Um, yesterday we heard his talk on Spain. Um, and empirically, there are a lot of parallels with South Africa. South Africa being a semi-arid country with scarce water resources, having a Mediterranean climate. Um, and so I start off with the idea that as I just said, process of social change pivot around the production of nature. But at the same time, the production of water becomes constituted of and by racialized social spatial formations and their associated power relations. And so therefore, I'm asking, how does water contribute to the production and stabilization of racialized social formations? And then look at how articulations of race and nature, you know, don't only work relationally as forces of domination, exploitation, and oppression, but also as mobilizing forces through which the politics of water are contested, negotiated, and resisted. Sorry about that. Um, and I think that's the last point is really important in terms of understanding how the ANC government um, is able to continuously gain support and why places uh, like Sarah's don't necessarily resist privatization of water through prepaid meters. Okay, so I, as I said, I detail a periodization of South Africa's water history, and this waterscape is not only the infrastructure or the policies, but very much embedded in the social relations that it produces. And so I'll first talk about the colonial origins of water privatization and dispossession point out that the idea of commodification of nature is not a recent phenomenon. It starts back to at least the colonial period. Um, and then move to the apartheid period and then liberation. And so what I'll do is just draw on quotes in order to 
just give you an idea of what I'm talking about. So, in 1883, there was a quote in the New York Times by a British colonial officer stating that the Cape, the southwest part of South Africa, free from all fear of war or rebellion by the extermination of the Bushmen, subjection of the Hottentots, and the wholesale immigration of the Dutchmen, has to dread the not less formidable attack of perennial dread. This quote is very uh, significant in the sense that it not only shows how the crisis of water and the problem of water scarcity is not recent, but also how the mobilization of water was very much inextricably linked to processes of dispossession and the mobilization of the cheap labor force. And so the dispossession of land was also linked to the dispossession of water through the riparian system, because all water attached to land was part of the property owned by the landowner. And so mountains, as I discovered during my interviews, are, were, were a key site to established farming because of the springs that streamed through the mountains. And it began then with the development of irrigation channels. But then, um, as development expanded and more irrigation was needed, the apartheid period from the second half of the 20th century was very much characterized by large investment in hydraulic engineering and infrastructure. Um, and again, this was very much geared towards building a white nation. And while in, it was a time of diversifying the economy, agriculture still played an extremely important role because it was the political and economic base of the apartheid government. And so there were huge investments in, in dams um, and large dams that were fueling water to farm dams. And all of these projects were very much subsidized by the government. So even the privatized farm dams were subsidized by the government. And yet this has very much changed in the new period. But the result is a landscape that is dotted by blue pools in a country that is scarce. And so the farmers would call we talk quite proudly about their efforts in taming the desert. This graph shows um, the reservoir capacity um, and how much it grew during the 70s and 80s in particular. Um, with the passing of the new water legislation after 1994, the major uh, point was to redress the inequalities uh, in access to water, which to its credit, the ANC government recognized and therefore abolished the riparian system by nationalizing water resources. And yet, it, it nevertheless ensured that existing water rights were, product, were protected, um, leaving very little water left to be distributed. And at the same time that the government said it wanted to shift away from a supply-oriented productivist water logic, it has continued to build major dams, um, and even more so today. Um, and it will draw on notions of the fact that 95% of agricultural water still remains in white hands, and we must build dams in order to ensure that black farmers have more water. Um, and uh, this quote from President Mandela was in reaction to protests in Soweto who were 
and Alexandra, a township outside of Johannesburg, that were paying for, not able to pay for uh, storing water bills after the construction of the, Lus the Lesotho Highlands Water Project. Um, and he was justifying the dam, arguing that it was in, in order to meet the needs of our formerly disadvantaged communities. And, and frankly, um, domestic water supply in general, but what is used in the township, is minimal. And so, some concluding remarks. Um, basically, I want to show how the deep modification of water in the post-apartheid period becomes articulated with a national project of democracy and freedom in ways that re-inscribe racial practices and effects. The nationalization of water contradicts with the reality of the residual property rights to water. In particular, racial redress may, is made compatible with productive logic, as shown by the quote that I mentioned uh, by Nelson Mandela. Hydraulic engineering needs to be seen as a shift from monument to progress and modernity and the building of the triumph of the white nation to now the material basis for promoting social justice and racial redress. And finally, the production of water becomes a means through which to rearticulate relationships of class, race, and nationalism, which in turn reconfigure Promethean ideals in advancing the post-apartheid neoliberal configuration. Thank you.